No one needs another true crime podcast in their life, but we know you want one. Melissa and I are best friends and we wanted more too. When Whitney and I couldn't find exactly what we wanted, we created our own. Cults, Crimes, and Cabernet embraces the grim realities of the world with a side of wine. Don't drink wine? That's okay too. Over the last three seasons, our true crime journey has evolved from being a listener like you to becoming advocates. Each week, we cover an unsolved case in a different state in an effort to create new leads to help advance the case. To take advocacy one step further, we also travel to locations to help families of those who have gone missing or have been murdered. Whether it's a foot search or passing out flyers, we will be there, no matter where, no matter who. We invite you to join us, so pop a cork and grab a glass, because we have work to do. Colts, Crimes, and Cabernet is available wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to The Murder in My Family. Brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the murder of my family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the tragic death of a beloved 51-year-old mother who died in her apartment in a fire, a fire that was deliberately set. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a minute to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurdermyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or by searching for the Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash themurdermyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters. And thank you to all the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please consider supporting any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that the show can go on 
and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. On the morning of July 20th, 2020, a fire broke out in a Reno, Nevada apartment complex located at 340 Broadway Boulevard, and it had deadly consequences. At 5.30 a.m., confused residents awoke to find the building on fire, and they scrambled to escape the flames. Several people were injured, but managed to escape. Two people, however, were not so fortunate and perished as a result of the fire. Dead following the tragic fire were 70-year-old Catherine White and 51-year-old Diana Angstrom. In this episode, I'll be joined by Diana's daughter, Nancy. From the beginning, it was clear to investigators that the fire wasn't an accident. The arson investigation unit and robbery homicide were both called to the scene. One man, a former firefighter, was instrumental in their investigation, telling authorities that he had seen the smoke early in the morning after dropping his wife off at the airport, so he went searching out the source of the fire. Once he got near the complex, he saw a man carrying a gas can run to a parked car, get in, and then speed off. The man followed the fleeing car west on I-80 and called 911. Police followed and pulled the car over. 31-year-old Brian Bandy was arrested in connection with the fire. He had thrown the gas can out the window during the pursuit. A female acquaintance who was driving the vehicle, who some sources say is his wife and others say his girlfriend, was questioned by police and she described a very tense morning. Bandy had woken her up early that morning by putting her in a headlock and then ordered her to drive to a gas station. According to KOLO-TV, he told her, I have to do this before it gets light. He also instructed her specifically to drive to that complex on Broadway Boulevard. He went on to tell her, the world is a mess and I need help, and right after that, he got out of the car and started the fire. As he got back in the car, he threatened the woman with a knife and ordered her to drive him to California. She told investigators that a woman who had lived in the apartment building owed Bandy $400, and she felt that's why he targeted that address, but it's unclear who the person was Bandy targeted inside the building. What is clear is that several residents lost their belongings, their pets, some of them their lives, and they didn't even know this man. They were sleeping in their own homes where they should have been safe, unaware that someone was dousing the building in gasoline and about to start the fatal fire. Bandy was charged with arson in the first degree and false imprisonment with the use of a deadly weapon. Later the same day, he was charged with two counts of open murder. For these two murders, he faced life in prison without the possibility of parole. In January 2022, Bandy pleaded guilty to two counts of murder with the agreement that the prosecution would drop the arson and false imprisonment charges. It looks like Bandy hasn't changed his behavior behind bars, though. His record at the Washoe County Detention Facility lists four charges of battery by a prisoner and one count of damaging jail property in excess of $5,000. Diana Engstrom's daughter, Nancy, described her to me as the kind of person who loved to help others. She made sandwiches that she passed out to people that she saw living with no homes, and even asked them their favorite type of food, and she spent her time looking for places that would have meals that people liked. She was someone who was willing to give the shirt off her back, and she says Diana went all out for strangers. She also went out of the way to help her friends and family as well. If you had something you were passionate about, Diana had a completely personalized gift basket just for you. As her daughter Nancy grew up, the gift basket switched from being full of coloring books to makeup, candles, and wine. These gifts were just an outward reflection of Diana's bubbly personality. 
Nancy told me that her mom was her best friend. She was a loving wife, aunt, grandmother, and sister. She was a woman who could just light up a room with her laugh that Nancy misses so much. Nancy said that whenever she was having a bad day, whether it was anxiety or work-related, or she was just in a funk, one phone call from her mom would make everything better. And a trip to Diana's house was welcoming with the smell of banana bread, cookies, muffins, or any number of different things cooking in the oven. But it's not just Diana's friends and family who are feeling her absence. The Reno community has lost an advocate, someone who is always willing to help those in need. And they, along with Diana's family, have been robbed of a wonderful person, tragically taken from them by someone acting out in a fit of rage. I sat down with Diana's daughter, Nancy, who discusses her mom's tragic case and how losing Diana has affected everyone that knew and loved her. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Nancy, and thank you for coming on the Murder of My Family to discuss your mom, Diana's case with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to have you here. I wish it was under different circumstances. Your mom's death was very tragic. It's been just two years uh, since you lost her. And the whole story about what happened and who did it is something we're going to dive into. Before we do that, though, can you tell us a little bit about your mom? Uh, Well, yeah, so not to sound super cliche, but she was my best friend. And she just, she was a mom to anyone that met her. And all my, a bunch of my friends were going back to childhood. They would all just come over and call her mom. And she used to bake cookies. And our house was kind of the house to go to, you know? The house where everyone liked to hang out, it sounds like. Yeah, that was that was definitely our house. If if any of the parents can find their kids, they were like they're probably at the house on the corner, and that was us. Oh, your your mom was living in this apartment uh, complex in Reno. Yes. How long had she been there, and had she ever had any problems with anyone there? Um, she had been there. I want to say almost two years. I believe her. She um she lived there with my with my dad and my little cousin too. And I want to say they moved in at the end of 2018. Okay. So she had been there a couple of years, no problems with any neighbors, any run-ins with anyone. No, I, ironically the exact opposite. All of her neighbors, they were all part. They were all pretty close. Okay. And, and I want to go back to July 20th, 2020, there's this awful fire at the complex your mom lived in. Uh, the fire was pretty big from the sounds of it, from the reports. Lots of people were displaced. There were pets that died in the fire. Um, how many apartments yeah. were affected total? It was um, eight total. It was, there were four downstairs and four upstairs. Okay, so this this is pretty big. Um, now, do you, were you in that area? Did you know about this fire or hear about it? How did you find out about uh, the Yeah. So at the time, I was living in um, Carson City, which is about 20, 25 minutes. I want to say south of Reno, but that I'm pretty sure it's south. But it's like 25 minutes away. And this, what happened was I was planning to go meet my mom. We had planned the day before I was going to go take her grocery shopping. We did that like once a week or every other week together. and. I woke, I hadn't 
I told her she hadn't heard from me by a certain, by like 10, I believe it was 10 o'clock in the morning to give me a call and I'd wake up and then I would just get ready real quick and drive over. And my phone was having some technical difficulties. I later found out there was a faulty SIM card. So you could only call me on Wi-Fi. and my mom wasn't the most tech savvy person. So I had to walk her through what to do. And then we practiced when I got home to see, to make sure she could figure it out. And that call never came. And I woke up to about 38 missed calls from my cousin and she has a daughter. So my first initial thought was what happened to the baby? Like something's wrong. 38 missed calls. Isn't just, I'm trying to talk to you about something. 38 missed calls if something is wrong. So I call her back and she was like, there's a fire at our parents' apartment because my aunt and uncle lived in the apartment next to my mom. So, and she was like, everyone's at the hospital, but nobody can find your mom. And that was kind of that first, it all sunk in that I was like, is she actually gone? That was where my brain went. I was like, that she's gone. I don't know what happened. I thought it was like an electrical fire at first, but the fact that everyone else in my family was accounted for, except my mom, I had that like gut feeling. And I, I just, it's like a sense that she wasn't here anymore. And I imagine there had to be a lot of chaos there. There's fire trucks, there's people all over the place. Oh. It, it must've been uh chaos. Absolutely. I made a call to a friend who drove me to Reno because I told her, I was like, something's going on. There's a fire in my apartment. I can't, I'm a, there's a fire in my mom's apartment. I can't get hold of her. I was calling her phone uh, and it was just straight to voicemail, straight to voicemail, straight to voicemail. So I was like, I need a ride. I can't drive. I'm freaking out. And she's like, yeah, I'll be right there. So she picked me up and drive me there and the whole street's blocked off. So I just get out of the car and walk. And I was, I saw the co- the detective and a couple of firefighters and I told them, who I was and what I was doing and I was looking for and they couldn't give me any information at the time. And my heart is racing this whole, this is like a probably 45 minute time frame, but it feels like an eternity. I just, I was hoping I would get a call from a hospital or something. I was hoping she was like unconscious and at the hospital and couldn't get a hold of me. Which is in itself a bad enough situation. That you're that you're hoping yeah, so that she's in the hospital. Yeah, that's where my my dad and my little cousin and my aunt and uncle, because they all lived there as well. I think I'd mentioned that already. And my dad and my little cousin and my mom all lived in one apartment, and then my aunt and uncle were to their right. It was at it's it was estimated around five in the morning is when this all started. And was everyone asleep? Yeah, it was um it was a Monday morning and to my recollection everyone was asleep and my little cousin had just like fallen asleep because he was working overnight at the time so he had only been home a couple of hours and he had just like went to bed and he didn't he didn't know what he was watching TV and then he went to bed and then my aunt called my mom cuz she used to call and give her a wake up call in the morning and that happened, and my mom, we don't know, she 
realized everything, but that was when my dad smelled something. He was like, something's on fire. And he goes to run, opens the door, and the whole side of the building is just swallowed in flame. Oh. So, th- so right away, there's, uh, I'm imagining, scrambling, trying to figure out how to get out. How did your uh, yeah. your, your cousin and, and your dad get out? They jumped out of the uh, their my mom and dad's bedroom window. Okay, was it really smoky and, and hard to see what's going on and hard yeah. to find your mom? Yeah, from my dad opening the door and at that early in the morning, no one's logically thinking. At first, I think he told me that he saw the the garbage can or there was something in the parking lot burning, so he opened his door to look. And then once he opened that door, the the oxygen flow sucked everything in. Yeah. I can imagine it was sort of like a little bomb going off in there, just setting everything on fire. Yeah. Yeah. And you could hear, like, from the, my little cousin, was he talked to me about it a lot, too. And you would hear, like, he heard a couple of explosions. And we we never really figured out what it was. I assume I acclimated to, like, the TVs and appliances and stuff like that, just from all the heat, them like them popping and stuff is what I assume it was. Mm. And how long were you down there sort of in the aftermath waiting and and trying to find out what was going on, trying to find out where your mom was? How long a process was that while you're trying to get some news? That took from that whole day is kind of just a giant Blur, I remember it as a never-ending day. But I think from the time I got to Reno until I found out that my mom had died was about five or six hours. And in that time, I went to, I went and found my dad and visited him at the hospital. And then I had, I went to a different hospital because they sent everyone, no, no one went to the same hospital. My little cousin and my aunt and uncle went to one hospital and then my dad was in another. So I went to find my dad first, talked to him. He was still like in shock. He what he was he didn't know everything that was going on. And then I went to the other hospital to see my little cousin and my aunt. My uncle I couldn't see him right away and I don't remember. I think he was still unconscious. I think he was still on the in, uh intubated and everything at the time when I was there. Hmm. And so this is a, a, a quite a while and then how were you told the news did the fire department or did the police come to you and and tell you um the detectives had told me when i first got there they told me it's going to be a little while and that because there was two people that hadn't made it out and they were trying to figure out who was who so they told me later and give it a few hours and to call the uh, medical examiner the washoe county medical examiner office it had to be like eternity waiting to to find out it was yeah it it, it would took it's minutes felt like hours hmm. and then you you finally did get the worst news you had this feeling that your mom wasn't with you you said early on but now you had official confirmation that she was gone how how tough was that to get that news it was awful especially based on where I was, it was almost like a dream. I wanted that I wanted to wake up from and I couldn't. I was in the ICU waiting room at the hospital to visit my little cousin and 
that was when they finally got back to me because I had left, I had called and I left a message and obviously they were busy, but she had called me back and was like, can you describe your mom to me? So I did. I gave them her height, her hair color. And then she had a tattoo of my birthday um, on her left um, upper chest. So I used that as a marker to help them to help confirm it. And that was when she was like, yes, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we have your mom here. And I just, I let out the, I, I screamed and I just fell to the floor. I just, I, for the first time in my life, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just, hmm. it was, it was too much. And I wanted it to not be real, but at the same time, I, I had a feeling and my mom always told me when I, from when I was little, to like trust your instincts, trust your gut. If you feel it, you feel it. And, but there was just something about me giving her description and then confirming it that just made me realize it was all real and happening. Mm. You know, you're trying to process this news and I, I'm assuming, but maybe not. Were you thinking that this was just an awful, tragic accident that happened? Yes. Initially, that was where that was where my brain went initially because I don't know what else it would have been because based on where the apartment was, it was super secluded. It was like it was right off of the street, but almost if you didn't know about it, you'd blink and miss it because it was behind some houses. So it kind of hid. So that's what made me think it was an accident because how could anything else happen with no one knowing exactly where it was? It was hard to get to, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, just, so you're, you're thinking probably the most logical thing, this is just some electrical fires, you know, somebody's cooking something, something along those lines, but yeah, eventually it became clear that this was no accident. How did you find out that this wasn't an accident that someone had set this fire intentionally well when i when i found out was i was i looked at online because there was people telling me that that was on the news that i had already woken up to a few messages aside from my sister calling but i called her back before i even did all this so later on and then i was looking at the some of the videos from the news coverage and i the, I knew instantly once I saw the footage that there's no way that that was electrical. I saw how big the flames were and how hot it was and how fast. Like the whole building was gone in less than 10 minutes is what bystanders have told me that I've talked to like the neighbors. The whole building was just gone and there, an electrical fire to burn that hot that fast. I was like, no, there's more to it. There ha- there's no way. And then I guess pol- the police eventually confirmed that for you. Yeah, the eventually it's pretty early on. It happens. I think it was just. I think it was that day or the next couple of days that they confirmed it officially. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it. This was an extensive fire. It caused a lot of damage. People were injured. Uh, you know, yeah. pets were were lost your mom diana was killed as was another woman named Catherine white um right so now that this was clear that this wasn't an accident there was uh, you know someone had murdered two people and hurt a lot of other people um 
what was it to, to you know, to, obviously this was tragic to begin with, but what was it like to find out that someone had intentionally done this to your mom? It, it hurt. It was, it was like a, a knife to my chest. Like I couldn't breathe. Like all my air was punched out of me. It was because my mom was the nicest person around. She would, and metaphorically and literally take the shirt off your back and give it to you if you needed it. She was always there. She did everything for everyone. If you needed it, she, if she didn't have it, she figured it out and helped you. She was, uh, for lack of a better term, she was a, uh, she was a saint to a lot of people, uh, friends and family that knew her. It is this very tragic and uh, senseless, You mentioned earlier that the police sort of zeroed in on the person that did this, a 31-year-old guy named Brian Bandy. Um, yeah. Was he someone that your your family knew? Was he one of the tenants there? Or what was his connection to that place, and why did he do this? From my understanding was he not to, he didn't have any connection to my family directly, but from my understanding, he was associated with uh, one of the downstairs neighbors. They were acquaintances. And did he have some kind of, I, I, you know, in researching a little bit, I saw that he felt that someone, uh, there was some kind of conflict over money or something. Yeah. And even to this day, it's still unclear to me, but that's what I was told to that. There was some conflict over money, like some either, he owed them or they owed him and I'm unclear how much of that's factual and which side was which side but from what I heard it was just it was a couple hundred dollars and like I said I don't remember which side owed which side but that's allegedly what led to all of this mm. so so he sets this fire and you know causes all this destruction and this loss of life over 400 hours, which is what I yep. saw reported 400 hours, but something very minimal. Said. Yeah. It, it just doesn't make sense. Um, so did police arrest him pretty quickly? I know he abducted a, a woman that he lived with, forced her at, uh, with a weapon or something to drive, uh, yeah. drive him around. How, how were they able to catch up with this guy and take him into custody? That's my that's the part of the story I really am happy about and blessed for, because I know there's plenty of people who uh, not just from your show, but from other like shows that I watch other podcasts I listen to. There's people that go years and years and decades and never know. But there was a guy who was dropping his wife off at the airport, which was relatively close to where the apartment was and saw like a smokestack and checked it out because the curiosity got the better of him. And he saw a car driving the wrong way away from the building, driving the wrong way at a high rate of speed. So he took it upon himself. To, he sensed that he's like, something's not uh, right about this. So he got on the phone with the police and told them the license plate and the direction it was going. And then the cops eventually met up with him and took over. Oh, uh, and and you, you sort of mentioned it that in a lot of cases that I cover, 
people are still searching for the person that took their, their family member from them for years, but yeah, you were fortunate enough to have a name and, and find out who this person was relatively early. Absolutely. And, and so obviously you've got to make, you know, final arrangements for your mom. Um, you've got to recover from this. You, you've got family that's injured that has to recover from all of this. And then now you've got the prospect of facing this, this person did this in court. Uh, he wound up mm-hmm. taking a, a plea deal, it looks like, and, and pleading guilty yeah. to the murders of your mom and, and Catherine White. Did he fight Correct. the charges at all or did he, did he accept responsibility? Not- he, I, so from my understanding, he accepted the responsibility and that pled guilty versus dragging it out and going to trial, which would have been extremely emotional, both for my whole family and especially my aunt, my uncle, my little cousin, my dad, that were all there firsthand and everything. And we're, but we're still waiting. We've gotten continuance after continuance on a sentencing date and we're on number i don't know now three four maybe five and they just his attorney keeps like they're extending it and the to the circumstances i'm not 100 percent sure he just keeps asking for extensions to get his attorney i think the this last time he had switched attorneys okay. and the attorney needed time to do his research on the case and get all the facts and everything. So I know it was spring of this year that he actually pled guilty, um, but the sentencing is what's holding everything up from you getting some kind of outcome here. Yeah, we're to, yeah, to, I believe there's supposed, there was something today on the day we're recording this, the 24th. He, I think they'd went to court, but I haven't heard anything yet. So I don't know if he just, got because today was supposed to be the day we get a sentencing date and i haven't heard from the people that have been in contact with me to give me the date so i don't know if that got rescheduled or if there was a sentencing date given and no one's contacted me yet but that was supposed to be today mm-hmm. So this is really dragging on and, you know, I, yeah. I, is it, you feel that it's sort of preventing you from healing and, and not that anything will ever completely heal you, but it seems like you're stuck here in this same, you know, zone or whatever, yeah. all this tragic stuff. Yeah. I feel like I'm just in a constant loop because as you said, nothing's gonna, I'll never stop grieving for my mom, for my best friend, my, she was there for me. If I needed anything, she was a phone call away. And ironically, when I, the day I got the news that I lost her, my first thought was to call her and then it clicked. And I spent quite a few months when something good would happen, something bad would happen. I would pick up my phone and go to call her and forget and re grieve all over again. I know in, in maybe in one sense, him, you know, pleading guilty sort of eliminates the hard part of a trial. But are you, do you feel that maybe not having a trial, you won't get all the answers you're looking for? Yeah, I do. I feel like there's pros and cons to a trial and not a trial. 
And part of me wishes there was one just to further find out why, like why a few hundred dollars took away my mom, like, and another, and someone's like someone else's mom, grandma, you know, like you took two people with you over a few hundred dollars. Like, was it worth it? Has he ever shown any kind of remorse or reached out and expressed any kind of uh, sorrow for what he did? No, not not to me and not to anyone in my family. Not that I've heard, and I'm sure someone would have told me, but he's never reached out or had his lawyer reach out and try to get in contact with us or anything. But knowing the couple times I've seen his court stuff on online, like on Zoom and stuff, whenever there's a court thing, I'll, I'll jump in and see what's going on. But he's never really shown any remorse or said, hey, I'm sorry, I made a mistake that I can't take back, but I apologize. Would that mean anything to you or would it sort of be useless? Uh, no, it would honestly be useless. And people could tell me that that's wrong. But no, I he couldn't say sorry and apologize a hundred times. But none of that's going to give me my mom back. You, in a in one moment, you made a decision that took her away from the rest. of. I was 26 at the time. I was. I was, I, I haven't lived my life yet. I'm, and I'm getting married next year and I'm not going to have my mom there. She, he took a lot away from me. So it's, and I, I'm sorry, isn't going to cut it for me. And if anyone else in my family or my mom's friends, if they like got a sorry and they wanted to move past it, they would, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't mean anything to me. It would just be empty words. Hmm. Do you know what kind of uh, sentence he is looking at? What kind of time he might get for this? Um, yeah, from what I saw from the last Zoom court date that I had seen, he was looking at 40 years for each um, victim. So for my mom and for Catherine White, he was looking at 40 years each hmm. at minimum. I was just going to say, would that be like sort of on top of each other or would they run concurrent at the same time? At the same time, they'd run concurrently. Okay. Um, so, but so he's, he's got those, or I guess are, are the most serious charges, obviously the murder charges, but um, then he's also got all these other related ones, I guess, with the fire and everything. Um, yeah. Uh, he's what, 30 something years old. So if he does a full 40 yeah. years, um, you know, at the very least, he would be in his 70s when he got out. Um, yeah. Which, But he would do what I, from my understanding is it was 40 for each. So he's looking at 80 years minimum. Okay. Okay. So that. Yeah. 40 for each victim. Yeah. I was going to say, because if, if that was the case and he could technically get out when he was 70, that would only be like 20 years older than your mom was when she died. Yeah. Um, which would, would definitely just seem very unjust. Um, so I, I hope whatever happens with the sentencing, it, um, you have some kind of peace from it. Um, everyone that was displaced by that fire has to rebuild and replace what they lost in the fire. And, but you and your family can't really do that. You can't replace your mom. Um, right. how tough have these last two years been for you and your family without her? I know you mentioned that she was your best friend and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, 
what is it you missed most about your mom at this point? I miss just the fact when I would leave, if I would leave her house, she would always make sure I left with a bag of groceries. I, even if I didn't need them, she was like, here, take this. And she would text me when I was like, when I'd leave, she would be like, don't forget to call me when you get home. I won't go to sleep until I know you're home. And one time I forgot and I fell asleep and I woke up to like 30 text messages. Hello, are you home? You better not be dead. Hello, hello, call me. And I was like, oops. Oh man, that was rough. Uh, It's it's like the the mom things that many of us maybe take for granted. Those little uh, things that sometimes they seem like they're being a pain in the butt, but they're it's just because they care. Oh yeah, Mm. yeah, I have one of those. Like my mom and I, one of our things was we would go out to lunch twice a month, no matter how busy our schedules got. We'd go out to lunch twice a month, either lunch or early dinner, and. We would go, my dad would drop us off and pick us up because we'd go have a couple drinks. And every time I would order a drink, they'd ask for my ID. And my mom would go, hey, you know, when they ask your daughter for her, you know you're old when your daughter's old enough to drink. And I was like, mom, stop saying that. It's embarrassing. They're going to think my ID is fake with the way you stop. Stop. And every time, you know you're getting old when your baby's old enough to drink. And I used to want to just crawl under the table and hide. But like now, I'd give a kidney just to hear it one more time. Yeah. Yeah. It's like those kind of things that, you know, once they're gone, you look back on them and appreciate and um, be happy to have again. Uh, Absolutely. Well, you know, this two years you've been fighting through this and and waiting for the final outcome on on what the justice system uh, provides you. I'm I'm curious what advice you'd have for someone who maybe lost a loved one, you know, in, under similar circumstances, and, and maybe they're just, it just happened recently. What advice would you offer them on how to get through something like this? I would just tell them that it's going to be hard at first, but you just, you got to remember if you give up, they wouldn't want you to give up. You've got to keep fighting and pushing and trying and just because their life ended so abruptly and so tragically doesn't mean yours has to end with them. They would want you to move on. That's how I am able to get out of bed every day there, but there's days that I don't want to, but then I'm like, my mom would be mad at me. She would be cry for a little bit, get up and live your life while you got it because life's short and that's the definition of it, you know? Yeah. So basically just, uh, you, you think of what your mom would tell you, yeah. what advice she'd give you. Exactly. And just, it gets, I don't like to use the term, it gets better because it doesn't, but it gets easier almost because as time progresses and it's still so recent, but I'm going to always, always carry this grief, but as time progresses, I've learned how to carry on and everything gets slightly easier. It's not better and it's never going to be the same. I'm not the person I was when I had my mom. I'm, I've changed. It's, it's life altering. Hmm. But at the same time, she wouldn't want me to just lay in bed and give up. Oh, that sounds like re- really good advice because 
you know, the mothers uh, would would tell us, you know, I can hear my mom telling me, you know, you've got to keep going and stuff. And, uh, you know, I assume that's that's sort of what you um, experience, too. And they say time heals all wounds. I know that's a sort of a cliche, um, but I don't know if that's true. But maybe with the passage of time, life without your mom will become a little easier for you as you go. Um, and again, I'm, I'm hoping that you do get a, a just outcome with the sentencing when it finally does happen. Absolutely. And so do I. And I honestly think that's a big part of what I'm still hanging on to and why it's, it's almost like I feel stagnant. Like I don't want to move forward because I don't want to feel like I'm leaving my mom in the past. Hmm. But at the same time, I need I've got goals and dreams and things I want to do. And I'm, I think I've already mentioned it, but I'm getting married next year in, in the, um, in fall next year. And my mom's going to miss it, but she would want me to go on. And I, I hope one day when, if I get the privilege to be a parent, like I want to be just a fraction of the mom she was. And every time I tell any of my friends and my family that knew her, they're like, you're going to be fine. Look at, look at the mom you had. There's no way you could be a bad mom, but it was just with how close her and I were and everything. I feel like I have really big shoes to fill someday. And I just, she always wanted to be a grandma and she was taken before she got the chance. And it just, it hurts because her mom died before I was born really like soon before her mom died in October of 92 and I was born in September of 93. So before she hit that first year, she found out she was pregnant and had a baby. So like, and unfortunately now that's my life. So my kids won't know their grandma physically, just like I never knew mine. And I always tell everyone it's a cycle I intend on breaking. Yeah. And hopefully you, you pay forward some of what she what you had with her and in, in, in with your children. Absolutely. That would, that would definitely be my goal. And I already, I think about it and all just little things she used to do for me. She would like, she cut my sandwiches into little shapes and this was the nineties. They didn't have all those sandwich cutters they have now. She would hand cut like an elephant or a giraffe or whatever animal I wanted into my, sandwiches for school she would take that time and make it mine and just I don't know anyone else that's who would have done that I I don't think I can do that I'm not that crafty my mom was quite crafty and she used to she used to make dresses she made like her prom dress and her wedding dress and all sorts of stuff she, she was just that kind of crafty person no. Well, just being that creative, maybe you'll find something special that you can do with your kids that sort of yeah. uh, honors her memory. Absolutely. And even though, like I said, even though her mom died before I was born, I feel like I know her because my mom fed me stories and told me all about her. And now that's something I'll, I'll do with my kids, even though they won't get to physically meet her because she was taken from us. I will tell them all about her and I hope that feel like they know her like I did too with my grandma well, well that's a, a very positive message and, and a good way to end this and 
Uh, Nancy, I want to thank you for coming on to talk about your mom and sharing her, her story with us. And again, I hope that you do get the justice that your mom deserves. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for having me. I, it means a lot. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.